to Wendell's World in Sports. Let's be great. Let's be great. An entertaining and provocative look into the world of sports and beyond. Play our game. Play hard, but stay poised. Please feel free to go over to Apple iTunes and rate and review. Your feedback is welcome. Go rock this thing, huh? Love you, man. Go get it. And now, the host of the program from the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area, Wendell Wallace. I'm ready to party now. I'm ready to party now. Welcome to Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Que pasa, mi amigos. Mi amo, Wendell Wallace. Wendell's World of Sports. So doggone glad that you could be with us. Bonjour, bonsoir. Monsieur, mademoiselle, je m'appelle Wendell Wallace. Wendell's World of Sports. So glad that you could be with us. Konnichiwa, wassalam alaikum, my brothers and sisters. Namaste. Shalom, Wendell's World in Sports. I am your host, Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. A lot of things to get down on and discuss today in the world of sports. You doing good? You doing fantastic? Answer me, damn it. You doing good? You doing all right? You feeling fantastic? You feeling wonderful? You doing everything that you need to do to make this world, to make this place, to make this universe, to make this country, to make your state, to make your city, to make your country, to make your region a better place to be? Learning, listening, learning, educating, correcting, understanding, respecting, loving, admiration, glorifying, all of those great things, love, peace, unity, harmony, everything we need to do to bring this world, to bring this society closer together, regardless of race, gender, creed, political affiliation, whatever, doing what we need to do to make this world, to make this place a better place to be. It's all about what's happening in the world today and what's happening in Wendell's world of sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Going to be concentrating Still on a lot of basketball today. No football, no college football, none of that stuff. I'm even going to be getting into a little bit of uh, high school basketball only because I'm getting a little bit excited because A, the weather is calming down just a little bit. There's going to be no more 118 degree day, 18 degree days for a while. So it looks like we're going to have our usual 105, 108, something that I can somewhat handle. But in a couple of weeks or so, no, probably next week, right? How about that? Yeah, starting the 20th. The uh, AAU fellows are going to be coming into town, going to be playing over at Bishop Gorman, going to be playing at the convention center, going to be playing at all gyms here across the um, landscape of Las Vegas, Nevada. And uh, the best basketball, high school basketball players are going to be uh, performing. They're going to be doing their thing. So I always make it an annual ritual every summer if I get a chance to uh, go out, take a look at all of the uh, – New young superstars that are going to be on the AAU circuit in high school basketball have an opportunity to take a look at some uh, prospects that Georgetown is looking at, uh, get a firsthand look, an up-close look at what they're all about, what they're doing, and all those type of things. So I'm always excited about uh, the month of January when it comes to out here in Las Vegas, the high school AAU basketball that's going to be played throughout the uh, throughout the uh, region here. So going to be getting into that just a little bit in terms of there's some high school basketball news that not only correlates with, you know, the high school basketball itself, which then there's a connection to college basketball, but you can also say it even leads to uh, what's happening with our USA basketball team. I'll, I'll get into that just a little bit. I'm, I'm not going to be hitting the panic button. I'm not going to be saying these guys are chumps or the USA sucks. I mean, it's such disrespect. And you know, there's a video out there of Greg Popovich after their exhibition, exhibition, exhibition. Remember that exhibition, exhibition 
loss to Australia where got a little testy. I don't think he was testy. He wasn't Bobby Knighting the guy or anything like that. It wasn't anything viral in terms of viral worthiness of a coach going off on a reporter. I mean, the reporter just wouldn't let my man Popovich speak. And he was just like, are you going to let me finish? Are you going to let me finish? Okay, are you going to let Can I answer the question, please? Are you going to let me finish? It wasn't like, you know, listen, you had your chance to do something. Now sit there or leave. I don't give a fuck what you do. Just sit there and shut the fuck up. I mean, it wasn't anything like that. He didn't threaten him. He didn't lose his temper. He didn't, you know, he wasn't enraged. He didn't, his voice didn't raise to a uh, ominous, violent type of level. He was just, can I finish? Are you, are you going to let me finish? He, he was perturbed. He was, uh, you know, a little annoyed, but he wasn't anything like, I didn't think that 70-something-year-old Greg Popovich was going to get off the uh, podium and attack the guy or make some type of threat. He wasn't going to go Conor McGregor after he got his leg broke and some of the nonsense, some of the bullshit, some of the ignorance that was spewed from McGregor's mouth after the loss. Popovich wasn't going to go that route. He never does, but I mean, he was just basically sitting there going, look, man, I mean, the days of us beating guys by 100 is over. This ain't 1992, okay? I mean, this ain't the dream team. And Larry, Larry Bird, Magic Johnson, and Michael Jordan aren't walking through that door. And, and let me tell you something. I, I hate for people to, uh, I hate to give people a kind of a reality check on this. And, and believe me, I grew up in the 80s. So I'm a fan of Magic and the Lakers and Bird and Isaiah and all those guys. You know, I grew up. The reason why I love the game so much is because the way basketball was played in the 1980s. of an affiliation and, 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 and affinity that I have for uh, players and teams of that era. So this is... I'm not one of these young cats who don't know anything, who thinks basketball started when LeBron James came into the league and was sitting there and sitting there going, oh, yeah, these guys are so this, that, and the other. No, I have great admiration and appreciation and reverence for the way basketball was played, for the fabulous talents and everything that uh, of the uh, 1980s and for the early 90s when the Dream Team was first uh, put together. But um, in today's day and age, the 1992 Dream Team, let's Put Jordan and Bird and all those guys back to, uh, you know, put them back to where they were in 1992 physical-wise. These guys aren't going to be dominating in today's landscape of basketball worldwide like they did in 1992. So I'm sorry, Charles, and I'm sorry, Clyde, and I'm sorry, uh, John, and I'm sorry, Carl, and my main man, Patrick Ewing, and those guys. I'm sorry. You know, and, and, and they're not the ones saying it. Maybe Scottie Pippen behind the scenes is waiting for another GQ magazine so we can blast uh, someone new, but... I'm sorry, guys. You guys who think that, you know, this is somehow, some way, USA losing an exhibition game to Nigeria, not great, to Australia, not awesome. But for all of a sudden now, you think that somehow this is supposed to be some type of opportunity to clown somebody or to, or to uh, you know, put the negative on somebody. It's bullshit. It's nonsense. It's a new way of basketball. Basketball has grown. Basketball has gotten better, not just here in the divided, racist, ignorant states of America, but all over the world. So teams like Australia, teams like Nigeria, teams from the continent of Europe, teams from all over the world have gotten incredibly better than when they first came onto the scene in international competition with the pros back in, the, uh, in, back in 1992. So I'm sorry to say this, but the beloved dream team isn't going to be blowing out the teams that are being played today. Again, even if you took that team, transformed them back physically to the, where they were in 1992, they're not going to be blowing out these teams. They're not going to be blowing out Australia. They're not going to be blowing out Slovenia. They're not going to be blowing out France. They're not going to be blowing out these teams. 
So for these guys to sit here and talk about what's the matter with the, with the racist, ignorant, divided states of America, have they lost, lost their edge or something like that? No. It's just a matter of over, I don't know, about 30, 40 years, the rest of the world has gotten great. And I'm sorry, the rest of the world, as far as basketball is concerned, has produced great basketball players. And the level of basketball in these countries has gotten better. Are we trying to say that this country is still not the best as far as basketball is concerned? I mean, I'm sorry, we're going to sit here and clown the basketball squad? I'm sorry, wasn't baseball supposed to be America's sport? Baseball, hot dogs, apple pie, and Chevrolet, right? Isn't that supposed to be the deal? Didn't we invent the game of baseball and all this bullshit? As far as the world is concerned, how are we in baseball? Are we better than the Dominicans? Are we better than some other Latin American countries? You take a look at the best players in the game. What The best players in the game, what are they the majority of? Oh, I'm sorry, non-American. So wh why aren't we blasting the baseball folks as much as we're blasting the basketball folks, at least as far as Olympic competition is concerned? So that, that's my deal on that. But there's a correlation now to what high school basketball is trying to do to kind of, I think all of these examples lead to what I'm going to be talking about later on in the podcast concerning what the uh, best high school basketball programs in this country are planning to do. So I will get into that later on in the program. And look, I'm going through uh, the last segment. I got to sit on the couch. The last segment, I, I need to relax, sit on the couch, and I just need your ears. I need your compassion. I, I just need you to listen. Don't shh, 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 don't say anything. Just just listen. Just hear me out. You know, you know, one of the things about being in a relationship with a damn good female, especially someone who rambles and talks and has the ego of mine, is that I I, I just need to be the center of attention sometimes. You know, in a in a in a in company of two, me and a female that I'm digging on, sometimes I need to be the star of the show. Sometimes I just need to talk and talk and talk and talk and let it all out. Yes, I know listening to this podcast, you say, Wendell, really? You talk a lot? Really? And unbelievable. But yes, yeah, sometimes I just need to just, you know, have the world centered around me so I can let it all out and I can feel better. The end of this podcast, the last segment of this podcast, I need you. To do that for me because I really miss my Georgetown Hoyas. I really miss reporting on my Georgetown Hoyas. And you're speaking about the month of July. This is when the Kenner League would start for Georgetown. And this is when we would get an opportunity. This one, when, when I would get an opportunity to see what improvements have been made from the team, from the players that's returning, I can get a look, my first look at these incoming recruits, freshman recruits. And what they're going to be doing and what's going to be the scouting report on them and how do they look and can they contribute and all of these type of things. Well, because of COVID in the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area, the Kinner League is not happening. So it's like I lost an opportunity to speak about my Georgetown Hoyas because I've, I've, I've mentioned before, you know, in, in terms of love and devotion and everything, the... Georgetown Hoyas, I mean, they're, they're like my wife in terms of sports is concerned. They're my Halle Berry. They're my Layla Roshan. They're my, uh, they're my uh, Eva Mendez. They're my Selma Hayek. They're my, shit, I don't know, Monica Bellucci. I mean, they're the, 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 they're the, they're the love of my life. They're the love of my life. 
Yes, there's some times where I need to take a break from them. I didn't have my mistress rolling, which is the NFL, college football. But, you know, I'm never leaving my Georgetown Hoyas to go for the Washington football team. I'm never leaving my Georgetown Hoyas to go for any team in college football, even though I desperately, passionately love the sport of football. October, September, August, whenever, when the the football season starts, I'm all in. But my Georgetown Hoyas, it's 12 months out of the year, seven days a week, 365 days a year, thinking about them, wanting to find out what's going on, hope the program's getting better, hope the players are getting better, hope the coaches are getting better, hope everything's getting better. So this is going to be a situation where the last segment of the program, last segment of the podcast, I'm warning you now, going to be speaking about my Georgetown Hoyas. I don't want to hear any moaning. I don't want to hear any complaining. I don't want to hear any whining. I don't want to see any eye rolling. I don't want to see lower lips sticking out. None of that nonsense. You're more than happy to turn off the goddamn podcast if you don't want to listen to it. But you would think for me, you do this for me. I'd do the same thing for you. If you wanted to speak on a basketball team, football team, hockey team, football team, rugby team, cricket team, you really had a passion for them and you wanted to hear and you wanted to say, Wendell, do you mind if you could just spare 15, 20 minutes just to uh, let me speak about my loves of my life in terms of sports is concerned, the blah, 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 blee, blee, blee. Could you, could you do that for me? I'm a nice enough guy. I'm a compassionate enough guy. Love, peace, unity, harmony, learning, listening, understanding, unity. I'm that type of guy to say, sure, sure, go ahead. You want to go ahead and talk about Boise State football? Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm here for you. Sit back, relax, I'm done. I'm ready. You want me to hear you talk about Michigan State football? Yeah, go, go, yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm there, right on. Let me hear what you got to say. Mm-hmm, right there. You want to hear me, you want to vent, speak about, talk about, give your thoughts and opinions about, uh, uh, a, a, a rugby football team in Perth? Yeah, I'm there. Uh-huh. Go ahead. I might not know the sport too much, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm down. Let me hear it. Let it out. Let it all out. So if I can do that for you, the last segment of the program, would you please do that for me? Appreciate it. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So, the things we are discussing today, I just mentioned, but I'm going to begin. First segment, main thing, playing the hits, the NBA Finals, Game 3. Milwaukee got themselves back into the series. 120-100 victory at home. Giannis Adenokupo had a 40-plus point game for the second consecutive game. The man is, jeez. And the Decoupo finished with 41 points, 13 rebounds, 6 assists in 38 minutes. The guy is just a monster, man. He's an absolute monster. He's an absolute beast. He's an unstoppable force. Past two games, speaking about games two and three, he's combined to shoot 29 to 45, 45 for the floor. That's 64%. He's averaging over the past two games, 12 and a half rebounds, five assists, averaging 39 minutes on a leg that should have kept him out until, I don't know, the year 2022. And the most important offensive stat that I saw for Giannis in game three, only two three-point shots. Halley flipping Luya. And he became the second player to ever record 40-plus points 
10-plus rebounds in consecutive NBA Finals games. The only other player to do that, Shaquille O'Neal. Let's just put it this way, man. You know, we came in, and I came in, and I talked about the winner of this series. It's going to come down between the big three between Phoenix, the big three between Milwaukee. For Phoenix, when I say the big three, I'm talking about DeAndre Ayton, Chris Paul, Devin Booker. When I'm speaking about the Milwaukee bus, I'm speaking about Chris Middleton, Drew Holiday, and Giannis. Which one of those threesome is going to do better is going to determine who's going to win the NBA championship. That's what I thought. You saw games one and two wins by Phoenix that uh, the those three for Phoenix outplayed the big three for Milwaukee. And then moving back home to Milwaukee, you saw that uh, Devin Booker had a terrible game. Chris Paul, decent. DeAndre Ayton got in foul trouble. But you saw Drew Holiday step up and have his, have his best performance of these NBA finals. Chris Middleton was solid. But Giannis is playing at another playing at another level. And he's become, I must say, the most forceful dominant player in the series. And one of the few guys, really, if you think about it, since LeBron is no longer playing or would no longer at his peak, where it's like Giannis can win this series all by him all by his damn self. And unless Middleton and Drew Holiday completely fall off the map, Giannis can win this series basically by himself. Jay Crowder, no answer. DeAndre Ayton, no answer. No chance. Mikhail Bridges, no chance. Torian Craig, no chance. There is nobody on Phoenix squad, Phoenix uh, squad that can handle this man. Speaking about Giannis. Can't do it. Can't do it. And when Giannis is on the move before the defense is set, game over. There's no stopping him. Either you're going to foul him or you're going to hope and pray that he misses. Because it, it, he's just too much of a physical, powerful force. When Milwaukee decided to use their physicality against Phoenix and decide to bully them around, we saw what happened in game two. Or excuse me, we saw what happened in game three. They grabbed 13 offensive rebounds compared to six for Phoenix, which turned into a 20-2 advantage in terms of second chance points. Six of Milwaukee's top seven players posted true shooting percentages better than 55%. That's the best field goal percentage for the uh, Milwaukee Bucks as a team since game three of the Eastern Conference Finals. Turning point came in uh, the second and third quarter, man. I mean, Milwaukee took it to them. Outscored them 73 to 48 in those two quarters. Ball game, thanks for coming. Outscored the Phoenix Suns 30 to nine over the last nine minutes of the second quarter. Ended the third with a 16-0 finish. See you later. Thanks for coming. Game four, here we go. And going back home, did Milwaukee some good? We, again, we also talk about the role players for both Phoenix and Milwaukee. The stars have to play ridiculously good, or the stars have to be stars, both on the road and at home. Now, from the basement level of being impactful star players, we're speaking about franchise players, we're speaking about MVPs, we're speaking about faces of the franchise and and, and, and those type of players. Not only do they have to be superstars on the road, but then again, they have to even bring it up another level when they're home because it should be that every player on the home team should get a bump, should get an advantage, should get a, a better performance when they're at home, when they're around their surroundings, when they're around their routine, 
when they're feeling more comfortable. Those players who don't perform as well on the road as they do at home, the role players, those guys should play better on uh, should be playing better at home. And then you constitute the fact that you know you already have the superstar where doesn't matter where he's going to be playing, he's going to have a tremendous game. He's going to be asked to do a lot of things. If he's great, if he's All NBA, if he if he's MVP, if he's a champion, he's going to on the road silence the crowd on the road. He's going to bring his force. He's going to bring his skill. He's going to bring his expertise. He's going to bring his greatness to that arena. But when he goes back home and he doesn't have to hear one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight every time he's at the free throw line, when the officiating is going to be geared more toward him in an advantageous way while he's on the home floor rather than being on the road, those things elevate his game. It should be on a pretty consistent basis, elevate his game to uh, you know where he's going to be even better than he would be on the road, which would be impactful just to begin with. Giannis has been that. Now, because of a toward a, a of a horrible game by Holiday and Middleton in Game Two, it wasted a fantastic performance by Giannis. But he transferred that over to Game Three, and now I think the light has gone on for him to say that you know what, man, these guys can't stop me, and if I can just stop settling for three point shots on a consistent basis in Game Two, he shot five. As I mentioned before, in Game Three, he shot one. If it's just a matter of, hey, man, let me put my head down and let me get to the basket as much as I can because Jay Crowder can't stop me. I'm fine with his Dirk Nowitzki one-legged fadeaway jump shot, and I'm fine with a couple of uh, fadeaway jump shots from the uh, short left corner on the baseline. I'm, I'm, I'm fine with that if he needs to take those, but he should be implying his force. He should be implying his power. He should be implying his physicality to get to the rim, to get the ball to the rim. And you know what? When they come over, when the defense moves in, double, triple teams, Giannis, he's been doing a great job. As I mentioned before, the last two games, he's averaging five assists per game. He's he's making passes for guys to make easy shots. Easy shots. He's never going to be the, <clears throat> he's never going to have that hockey assist total be high for him in terms of he throws the pass, which leads to the pass, which leads to the open shot that leads to the assist for the guy who made the pass before Giannis made the pass out to him. But he's going to be the guy that's going to be so worried about by the other team that, you know, it leads to open cutters to the basket for easy layups, for easy dunks. It's going to lead to sagging in on Giannis when he drives, which is going to be kicked out to Holiday or Middleton or Connington or Forbes when he's in the game for three-point shots. It's going to be there. It's going to be there for him. So when we take a look at the stats and we take a look at the 40-something-plus points, if <clears throat> when Phoenix Monty Williams makes that adjustment to say, okay, look, we gotta, you know, we gotta do something a little bit more to try to um, mitigate some of the damage that Giannis has done to us, well, it's going to be opening up opportunities for other Bucks to uh, go ahead and do some things. And game four, <laughs> it's, look, man, Drew Holiday had his best offensive game since game two of the Eastern Conference Finals against Atlanta. You don't think that's because of home cooking? You don't think that's because of getting in front of that home crowd? The ease, the comfortability, the routine, the acknowledgement of where he is, his surroundings, the familiarity with it. Yeah, he started slowly in the first quarter. He was two for five overall and 0 for three from the three-point range. But uh, guess what? By the time the third quarter came around, he made four or five of the three-point shots and finished the game with 21 points, five rebounds, nine assists. 
a team best plus 22 on the plus minus department. Shot 8 for 14 from the field, 5 of 10 from the three-point line. Middleton, Chris Middleton was efficient. Played a very good defensive game, I thought. He scored 18 points, 6 of 14 shooting, 7 rebounds, 6 assists. If you're a real Milwaukee Bucks fan and you're listening to this podcast called Wendell's World in Sports, that's the podcast with George Truly and Wendell Wallace doing the podcasting. If you're thinking about Chris Middleton and you're thinking about those stats and you're thinking about him in terms of him being the second most important player, maybe 2A with Holiday, I don't know. But as far as a bucket getter, a guy as a go-to scorer, a guy as... The best player on the Milwaukee Bucks, possibly, you want to argue Holiday, all right, but the best player on the Milwaukee Bucks to get themselves the basket when they need a basket, especially when you're speaking about from the perimeter, and a guy who's been a consistent all-star, a guy who's going to be a U.S. Olympian, a guy who, at that level, I'm still waiting for him to have that huge scoring game. I'm waiting for him to have that one takeover game. Hell, I'm waiting for him to have that big quarter. I'm waiting for him to have that that big moment in time when I'm more than I thought I could be, when all of my dreams were a heartbeat away and the answers are always on me. I'm waiting for Middleton to go ahead and give me that. It doesn't have to be for a game. Giannis has done that for two games now. But I'm waiting for Middleton to do something similar to what he did game six, the closeout game on the road against the uh, Atlanta Hawks, where he scored 32 points, 16, including a run of 16 straight in the third quarter that basically put the game out of reach for the Hawks and really gave Milwaukee the stranglehold on that game and closed out the series. I'm waiting for Middleton to give me that. Give me a hot Chris Middleton where you can't be stopped. Now, he showed flashes of that in game one, when Phoenix got up by 20 and Middleton hit a couple of tough contested threes to bring him back into shouting distance before Phoenix pushed the league back out again, I need to see Middleton do that when the game is tight. Not when Phoenix is up by 20. Not when Phoenix is doing all the rolling and the momentum is with them. I want to see, I want to see Chris Middleton again. If it's not going to be for a game, Give me that moment where it's like, man, this is a bad motherfucker right here. Give me give me that type of game from Chris Middleton. He's got it in him. He should have it in him. Game four, five, possibly six and seven. I want to see that from Middleton. If it, Again, if it's not going to be for a game, get, give me a half. Give me a quarter. <clears throat> give me the last six, seven minutes of a tight basketball game. Give, give me that from Chris Middleton. That's really, if I'm a Milwaukee Bucks fan in this series, that's what I'm I'm really itching for. I mean, Holiday can give you that possibly, but there's been more evidence that Middleton is going to be that guy. Middleton is going to get that chance, even though we've seen Holiday become very aggressive with these uh, NBA finals. I mean, this guy, I mean, he's he's shooting and shooting and shooting, and whether he starts off 3 for 11 or 2 for 5 or missing all the three-point shots, it's not deterring him from continuing to be aggressive offensively. But I, I still think in terms of the guy that Milwaukee needs, that they should be pining for, that they should be asking, okay, if, 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 if the 
if we could see the future or someone could see the future and they came back and they said, hey, you know, someone for Milwaukee, like, for instance, this series is going to go six games. I'm not going to tell you who won the game, but there's going to be someone from for Milwaukee in one of these games between four or five or six that's going to uh, be a monster and it's not going to be Giannis. Who do you think that guy from Milwaukee is going to be? People aren't going to say Bobby Portis. People aren't going to say Drew Holiday. People aren't going to say Brooke Lopez. People aren't going to say... People definitely ain't going to say B, uh, P.J. Tucker unless we're speaking about defensively and in, in in, in, uh, rebounding. They're going to go to Chris Middleton in terms of who's going to have that... Who's going to have that, that unbelievable impact for a short stretch or for a good portion of the game or for a decent portion of the portion of the game. And uh, I think that's coming. I think the Chris Middleton storm is a coming. I can't predict when I can't predict how long it's going to be, but that monsoon Middleton is going to be coming. I truly believe that Wendell's world of sports, the podcast. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Spoke about the Milwaukee Bucks, the 120, 100 victory over the Phoenix Suns, splitting the, or I'm sorry, uh, cutting the Suns lead in half, two games to one in terms of the best of seven series for the NBA championship. The role players, again, stepping up for Milwaukee, coming back home, Bobby Portis. You know what, if Giannis was the MVP, which he is, at least in game three, Bobby Portis with the heart, the soul of the team tonight, energy, effort, intensity, passion, the desire to be physical. You see him mixing it up with um, Jay Crowder, a couple of others. Saw his fiery exchange. I don't know if he was yelling at Jay Crowder. I don't know if he was yelling at Coach Bud. I don't know if he was uh, yelling at uh, the referees. I don't know who he was yelling at, but uh, he was taken out of the game one time. You saw him yelling and screaming. Someone had to kind of be like, hey, man, calm down a little bit. Take it take it down a notch. But no, nah, man, that's that's it. That's it. You need a little toughness. PJ can't do it by himself. You know, and Portis provided that energy. 18 minutes, scored 11 points. Maybe took him too many three-pointers, um, too many three-point shots for my liking, but scored 11 points. Second best, plus 19, as far as plus minus is concerned. Pat Connington scored eight points, three of five shooting. They're going to need him, especially when Milwaukee, I think their best ball is to go small, have Giannis play the five. If DeAndre Ayton is going to be in foul trouble, the loss of Dario Saric, the injury to Torian Craig, which limits his effectiveness from what it was before. If I, if Aiton gets in foul trouble, I mean, we're going to see a lot of small ball from Milwaukee. I would go on the assumption. And if that's the case, if you're going to have Giannis at five along with Holiday and Middleton, Pat Connington or Bobby Portis are going to be playing really decent minutes. When it's speaking of small ball, Pat Connington is going to be that guy. In game three, he played 30 minutes. And as I mentioned, he scored, I mentioned before, scored eight points. So you're going to need his contributions. He's made at least two three-pointers in every game, shooting almost 45% from the uh, field. So this is, you know, this, this series is far from over. Game four... I don't want to say game four is going to tell the winner of the series because... As much as the, um, you know, as much as I've been, you know, if you're a Milwaukee Bucks fans after game three, you're, you know, you're, you're, you're dancing in the street like Martha and the Vandellas and dancing on the ceiling like Lionel Richie. I have to remember that, you know, Phoenix does have the home court advantage. So for Milwaukee, even if they win game four to tie up the series 2-2, in essence, because of the home court advantage, the Phoenix Suns 
you would say have the advantage. Now, we've seen Milwaukee win on other people's um, home court against Brooklyn, against the Hawks. So it can be done. But Phoenix has such a strong home court that, uh, I don't know, it would be, it would be a monumental task for Milwaukee to go in there and win either game five or game seven. And if Phoenix wins game four, I mean, you can basically say for all intent and purposes that the series is over. Not saying it's over, over, but Phoenix would definitely be in a extremely strong position, not needing to win only one of then the next four, four or five games or some nonsense like that. So important game, but um, some really good signs from the Milwaukee Bucks. And, uh, you know, Giannis is going to be the, the main guy. Giannis is going to be the star. Giannis is going to be the Denzel. Giannis is going to be the Tom Hanks. Giannis is going to be the Michael Douglas of this of this movie called Can the Milwaukee Bucks Win Their First NBA Championship in 40-something Years? Giannis is going to be that guy. Talked about Bobby Portis. Talked about Pat Connington. Talked about um, Chris Middleton having a big game. Talked about Holiday. Talked about all those guys. The X factor for the Milwaukee Bucks, or the true factor, or the common factor, is going to be Giannis Adenikupo, the man that cannot be stopped, the most dominant player in this series. How dominant can he be? Can he continue to play at this level? Can he continue to be the dominant force that he is? If he can, if he can continue to play like that, and Phoenix does not make the adjustments, I don't know where they go. I don't know what they need to do. But if they uh, can't slow him down just a little bit, then despite the fact of Phoenix having the home court advantage, I think that uh, Milwaukee will be able to win the NBA championship. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Switching for the Phoenix Suns. Hey, man, just a bad day at the office. First time since game three of the first round of the Western Conference Finals against the LA Lakers that Phoenix was thoroughly beaten. Forgettable game for Devin Booker. I know Kendall is not very happy at that, even though I'm quite sure she's still looking attractive for him. Started started shooting. Speaking of Booker, started off shooting 1-7 from the floor in the first quarter. Finished the game with just 10 points, 3-14 shooting. Ouch. 1-7 from the three-point line, line. Ouch. Played just 29 minutes in the game. Didn't play at all in the fourth quarter. Monty had to uh, go over talk to him. Basically, he probably said, hey, man, shake it off. Just one game. We're still in the lead. We're still in control of the series. We still have home court advantage. And uh, we're going to need you. We're going to need your scoring. We're going to need your leadership. This is what you wanted. This is what the journey is all about. This is what the uh, book entails. This is what the movie is all about. This is the plot. This is the storyline. This is the script. You know, adjust. Get ready mentally. You got a couple of days off. Don't let this dwell. Don't bring game three into game four. We're going to need a big game from Devin Booker. You've done it before. We're going to need for you to do it again. This is what you signed up for. This is what you wanted. Talking about Kobe mentality, mama mentality. Talking about you want to be one of the greatest who's ever played this game. Game four, prove it. So turn that frown upside down. Still be there for your teammates. Keep engaged in the game even though you're not playing. And uh, get yourself, get your minds and your mentals ready for game four. How is he going to perform in game four? I think Booker will bounce back. I think he's shown the maturity. I think he's shown the toughness. And I think it's helpful that he has Chris Paul and Jay Crowder. If there is any doubt, if there is any lingering effects of how he played in game through game three, any 
chance that it will carry over in game four. I think mentally, Chris Paul and um, Jay Crowder will be the guy that will be like, nah, man, that shit is done. Time to move on. Time to uh, go ahead and get this get this game four. And then essentially, you know, put the kibosh on any hopes for a comeback by the Milwaukee Bucks. So, you know, what what do we do about Giannis? That's up to Monty Williams and the coaching staff. Again, Dario Saric, the injury really limits the front court players that can be put on Giannis Adenikupo. Not, not saying that none of these guys are Giannis stoppers, but the more bodies you can throw at Giannis, you're speaking about a guy here, here who's not a 100% healthy with the injury. He's not going to be a guy who's going to play 45, 46 minutes on a consistent basis. You got him for uh, 38, 39. So for the Suns, it's about trying to see what we can do to slow this guy down, to wear this guy down. Hopefully, you know, with everything that's being put on this plate and asking him to do, hopefully with his knee, the fact that he still hadn't gotten himself in the right conditioning yet, and probably never will by uh, the end of the series, hopefully somehow down the road, it will start to to wear him out. So the dips and the dives and the Euro steps and the power and the first step and the relentless attack on the basket will be mitigated uh, slowly but surely as this series wears on. And we get Devin Booker back to playing well. DeAndre Ayton has been solid, <laughs> played well in game three, was actually hitting some, uh, actually making some offensive moves, not uh, scoring via opportunities given by Booker and Paul at the at the rim. So Aiton is showing an expanded offensive game. Only problem in game three, got himself in foul trouble. Chris Paul, I mean he was he was there, did all right, but you know really didn't have an impact on the game. Of course, not when you lose by 20. The outside shooting, the three point shooting for Phoenix was atrocious. You take away Jay Crowder's six for ship six for uh, seven three point shooting and the Suns probably shot like I don't know like like 12% as a team. As I mentioned before, Booker shot one for uh, one for seven. So uh, just a bad day at the office. Cameron Payne didn't shoot well. Mikel Bridges was a no-show. Um, some of the players that thrived for Phoenix, some of the players that thrived when they were at home, Cam uh, Johnson, or me, Cameron Payne, Cameron Johnson and such, Cam Johnson, games didn't translate for game three when they go on the road. First time in a championship series that happened to them. So we'll see with them, with those players are concerned. Let's see what they can do to um, rectify the performance that they gave in game three. But game four, this is the most, this is going to be the most important game. I don't know how you say that bullshit. This is going to be an extremely important game. I hate saying this is the most this is the most important game by the Milwaukee Bucks because if they lose, they're going to be down three and one, and essentially the series is going to be over. So it's like okay, so if you let the fellas know that if you get the fellas, the Milwaukee Bucks players into that mentality, and then they lose game four, so wouldn't game five then be the most important game in Bucks history? If they win Game Five, then wouldn't Buck then game wouldn't Game Six be the most important game in Bucks history? And then if they win that in Game Seven, wouldn't that be the? I mean, so we're going on and on and on and on. Let's just say that Game Four is an, an important get for the Milwaukee Bucks. It's it's essential that they get it. And for Phoenix, both teams still looking for uh, their first championship in franchise history. Or I'm sorry, their uh, for Milwaukee would be their second. For Phoenix, it would be their first uh, Game Four. I expect uh, 
on Wednesday night. I'm recording this on a Tuesday morning, so you know tomorrow evening I expect both teams to be playing with the fire and intensity, knowing the importance of this game. But for Milwaukee, it's about hey man, Giannis, can you still continue to do what you're doing? Middleton, can we get something from you in terms of a huge game? If we do that, then hey, you know what? We got ourselves in an evenly competitive series. Giannis is the guy who's kind of maybe shown some, maybe kind of got some distance in terms of the team, in terms of the teams, in terms of Milwaukee, in terms of Phoenix. I can't wait for game four, man. As the great Jim Ross says, it is definitely going to be a slobber knocker. For all of us here at Film West, this is a long-awaited privilege and a great pleasure to bring on the number one lady, Miss Aretha Franklin. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Hello. What's happening? What's going on? What's going on? What's going on in your world today? What's happening, my man? Talking about what's happening in the world of sports. The first segment talked about the NBA Finals. Talked about Game 3. Talked about Giannis. Talked about Devin. Talked about CP3. Talked about Chris Middleton, talked about Drew Holiday, talked about what was happening in that series moving forward to game four. Going to switch sports, talk about UFC 264, mixed martial arts. There was a fight, there was a card in Vegas this past weekend. The fighter known as Conor McGregor of 2013 to 2016 is no longer walking through that door, folks. He's no longer walking through that door and into the octagon. Those days are gone. The Conor McGregor era is officially over. Over. Now, you might just find what is the Conor McGregor era. What would you say if, when I say Conor McGregor, the ones that we know in terms of, oh, yeah, Conor's great, Conor's awesome, Conor's wonderful, the sycophants who are just Conorholics. What do I mean by saying the Conor McGregor era is over. Do I mean that he's a bum? Do I mean that he should go to Bellator? Do I mean that he should retire? Do I mean that um, he's no longer a worthy fighter? No, 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 no. When I'm talking about, when I define the Conor McGregor era being being dead, I'm talking about, is Conor McGregor ever going to be one of the best pound-for-pound fighters in the world like he was for two to three years when he was at his prime? No. Is he going to have the ability to win another championship, be it featherweight, lightweight, welterweight? No. Is the ability to 
be able to compete for championships? Is McConnor, is Conor McGregor going to be that guy that's going to be able to beat top two, three fighters in the world at their weight classes? No. That's what I mean by the Conor McGregor era being over. This past Saturday night in Vegas, lost to Dustin Poirier when he suffered a gruesome leg ankle injury near the end of the first round. I advise people not to look for the replays. If you're squeamish, even if you're not squeamish, even if you're on an empty stomach, even if you just ate, don't don't do it. Don't do it. Second straight loss for McGregor against uh, Poirier. Record falls to one and three in his past four fights. Now, McGregor underwent surgery on Sunday. There's no timetable for his return yet. UFC President Dana White said later that he's open for a fourth fight between Poirier and McGregor. Oh, shit. Due to Saturday's fight ending due to an injury. McGregor was up there yelling, Dr. Stoppage! Dr. Stoppage! I'm sorry, man. There is no one loss Dr. Stoppage on your record. Either you win or you lose. Now, you could point to the loss and say, well, I really didn't lose. It was a doctor stoppage. Again, there is no win-loss doctor stoppage. Win or you lose. You did not win. You lost. So there you go. And I'll be I'll be honest with you. I didn't watch the fight on Saturday. Right now, I'm cool on the UFC because, uh, you know, basically, as long as they're going to let people like McGregor, as long as they're going to let people like Colby Covington run the roost in terms of some of the bullshit they talk about, some of the insensitive, racist nonsense that they talk about, I'm not really uh, digging the UFC as much as I used to. Um, but, you know, I, and, and, and not only that, I'm not really into Conor McGregor anymore. This isn't 2013. This isn't 2015. This isn't 2016. You know, Conor McGregor's old news. The Conor McGregor that many people still believe in, the guy that can still be a champion, the guy that still is the best, the Mighty Mac and all that bullshit. That, that guy's gone, folks. I mean, I hate, I hate to tell you this. For all you Conor McGregor lovers, I hate to tell you this. But the Conor McGregor you fell in love with, that guy is gone. That guy is done. That guy is buried in a mountain full, in a graveyard full. He's six feet under in cash, celebrity, and all the other nonsense that come with being a mega superstar global icon, which he became in 2016, November 2016, when he beat Eddie Alvarez to become the first two-time champion in the UFC and hold the belt simultaneously. That, that That guy died a long time ago. So you guys rooting for Conor McGregor or trying to make all of these excuses for Conor McGregor to be that guy again, it ain't going to be happening. Once you reach the top of the mountain, man, once you get to that point, what you dreamed about, what you lived for, what you worked for, Conor McGregor worked, yeah, he worked to be a champion, but he worked for everything that went with becoming a champion. He wanted the fame. He wanted the glory. He wanted the money. He wanted the impact. He wanted the fame and fortune and those type of things. Man came from Ireland. He was on the welfare when he first started his MMA career. He dreamed this. He blood, sweat, tears, sacrificed for all this. He was a young lad in his early 20s, mid-20s. I mean, this is what it was all about. So he reached that goal. So there's nothing left for him to do. He can't get any better than what his dreams were. You You can't get better than your dream. Conor McGregor reached his dream. Where do you go from there? You're not going to be able to sustain it. Times change, especially in the UFC, man. If you think about how quickly the superstars come and go in the UFC, there there, there is no like super longevity. That's why people like Anderson Silva and George St. Pierre and Demetrius Mighty Mouse Johnson and Fedor 
and all of these guys. That's why these guys are considered the best who's ever done it. Because in the UFC, you know, you lose a fight. A guy who's supposed to be, you know, the next coming, and he's super great in the Machado area and all, all this stuff. All of these guys who we think is all of a sudden now going to rule the roost for a couple of years, as soon as they lose, the slide is long and it's hard. Ask Hedden Morrell. Ask Junior Dos Santos. Ask Tony Ferguson. Ask BJ Penn. Ask Matt Hughes. Ask all of these guys who we thought were unbeatable, who we thought were going to be champion for a while, who thought we were going to be owning the division for a while. Once you lose, ask, shit, ask Anderson Silva. What has Anderson Silva done since losing for the first time in 10 or 11 years when he lost to Chris Weidman? Ask BJ Penn when he lost to uh, uh, Frankie, oh shit, forgot the man's name right now, Frankie Edgar. What, what happened to BJ Penn after he lost to Frankie Edgar? What happened to Leona Machida after he got uh, after he lost to um, um, Shogun Hua? What happened to these guys? They fall off. And we're speaking about guys who have hold it. When GSP barely got by Big Rig Johnny Hendricks, and many people thought he lost that fight, George said, that's it. I see the handwriting on the wall. Because after this fight, Lord knows we're going to have to have a rematch. Something tells me at the rate that I'm going and the life that I'm living and all the responsibilities and all the pressures of being a champion and being George St. Pierre of the UFC, if I fight on the regular schedule again against this guy, I'm going to lose. I'm going to lose. So when he took quote-unquote time away after that loss, after that uh, win uh, against Johnny Hendricks, he's fought once against Michael Bisbane, and that's it. That's all there is to it. How long did we think that Chris Whiteman was going to dominate the middleweight division after he went through Machida and a couple of other Brazilian guys? How long did we think that this guy was going to rule the roost until he finally lost to Luke Rockhold? And then we thought, well, shit, Rockhold beat the man. So beating the man, you know he's going to be a pretty strong champion. He His overconfident ass lost to uh, Michael Bisbane. So this stuff is fluid, man. This stuff really comes and goes. So for Conor McGregor, for you guys to think that Conor McGregor, you know, is going to pick up right where he left off in 2016, why, just because he looked good against Donald Cerrone uh, in his comeback, which was, you know, essentially a layup given to him? You know, that, 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 was, basically, um, that was basically Alabama football playing against uh, a team from the SWAC or the MEAC. I mean, all of a sudden now we're supposed to sit there and talk about this is the greatest human being who ever lived in the octagon because he beat up Donald Cerrone, a guy who has shrunk many times in big fights, never been a champion, and at that time he fought him with a shell of his former self, and all of a sudden that was supposed to make me say this guy is a worthy champion, this guy is ready for a title shot, this guy is ready to uh, ascend back to the throne of being one of the best pound-for-pound fighters in the world. Fuck no. No. No, you, you, you clowns can sit there and listen to his mouth listen to his bravado, listen to his bullshit, but I actually have seen him fight. And you can make the argument that, well, you know, yeah, he's one in three in his you know, last four fights, but guess who he's lost to? He's lost to the greatest lightweight of all time in Khabib Nurmagomedov, and then he lost twice to arguably the best lightweight going right now in Dustin Poirier. Far cry from when, uh, you know, BJ Penn was losing to nobodies and Junior Dos Santos was losing to up-and-comers. And Tyron Woodley, who was at one time 
on his path to become the greatest, one of the greatest welterweights in UFC history. Now he's losing to everybody and not even winning a round and getting his ass kicked for five or four or three rounds. I mean, you know, Connor is not at that stage yet. That's true. But when you talk so much bullshit, when you talk so much trash, when you talk so much nonsense, when your persona is so big, when your aura is so big and so grandiose, I, I'm sorry. You know, either you dial it down or shut the fuck up because you're not that guy anymore. And guess what? People with a brain in their head, I'm tired of hearing them. I'm here. I'm tired of it. That shtick was good for when you were one of the best in the game. That shtick was awesome. And you know what? I guess it still is because people are stupid enough to still believe in that nonsense and still want to buy a McGregor fight. I don't give a, I'm not watching Conor McGregor because of the, because he can talk smack. I'm not watching Conor McGregor fight because, you know, he, he's Ric Flair, The Rock, and Stone Cold, and John Cena, and CM Punk on the mic combined. I'm not watching Conor McGregor fight. I'm not judging Conor McGregor as a fighter because of that. How good is he as a fighter? When you get inside the octagon, there's no more fucking talking. There's no more. In, in between punches, you, you can't hold a press conference for you to talk smack. It doesn't happen that way. Who are you as a fighter, as a mixed martial artist? Are you still that guy? Are you near that guy? Are you still a championship contender? Are you still worth main event status? Are you still that guy who should be fighting for championships? And as of right now, July 13th, 2021, the answer for Conor McGregor is no, no. Did you notice after the fight was over against Poirier that he started threatening to kill his, him and his wife? Threatening to kill Dustin and Jolie Poirier in their, uh, uh, Poirier in this, in their sleep and makes gun signs to his head? He's an embarrassment, man. And I, I'm, I'm good for the clown show. I'm, I'm good for the circus. You know, for those who want to sit there and talk about Connor's great for the game. You know what's great for the game? Winning. You know what's great for the game? Excellence. You know what's great for the game? High skill level. That's what's great for the game. Now, now maybe UFC is a little bit different. You know, a, 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 a sport where you have someone like the Diaz brothers, who's at least in the UFC, has never won a championship. Nate Diaz is what? 20 and 14 or some nonsense like that, but somehow, some way, he still has a cult following. Somehow, some way, he's still the biggest draw, one of the biggest draws in the UFC. Somehow, some way, people still find him compelling. There's nothing compelling about Nate and Nick Diaz. Nothing. Zero. Zip. Nothing. And I've met uh, Nate Diaz. Seems to be a nice guy. Met him at one of these, uh, not meet and greets, but met him at the... Uh, UFC Expo years ago, pleasant, very nice guy. But how, as a fighter, what are you? As a championship contender, what are you? And for me, as a championship contender, he's just not worth all the uh, hullabaloo for me. Now, again, some people find him captivating. I have no fucking idea why. Zero idea why. Well, he was born in Stockton. He was raised, you know, tough and this, that, and the other. So he's the only one. He's the only one that's come from impoverished conditions. He's the only one that's had a tough life, really. He's the only one. He's the only one that has had these obstacles put in front of him and has overcome those obstacles. He's the only one in the UFC. He's the only one in sport. He's the only one in life that have done this. 
That's what's supposed to make him so compelling to me. This is the reason why I should want him. I should want to watch him fight, even though he's going to lose more times than not. This is the reason why I should buy a pay-per-view to watch Nate and Nick Diaz. When was the last time Nick Diaz fought? Five, six years ago? And there's buzz about him, you know, fighting Robbie Lawler. Why would I want to watch that fight? Robbie Lawler is finished. You asked me seven, eight years ago would I want to watch Robbie Lawler fight? The answer is yes. His fights against Rory McDonald, those classics, unbelievable. Hell yeah, back then I would want to watch him. I have no interest in watching Rory McDonald, uh, I'm sorry, um, um, oh shit, Robbie Lawler fight now? None. Why? So I can cringe? So I can yearn for yesteryear when he was a top-tier fighter? Good for him if he wants to do it. And then fighting Nick Diaz, I guess there's enough stupid people out there where they can uh, make a lot of money doing it. But you know the, the fact that you have a fucking clown, an embarrassment in the character of himself and Conor McGregor, who is a bigger draw than someone like a Kamara Usman or, or some of the other champions out there is a fucking joke. It's a fucking clown show. It's, it's sad, really. But uh, that's the way it is. You know, there's stu- people stupid enough to sit there and think that Conor McGregor, once his leg heals, that he's going to get back. And sooner or later, he's going to be turning 33 by the time he finally comes back after breaking his tibia. But somehow, some way, Conor McGregor is going to talk his, talk his way back into uh, greatness, talk his way back into the fighter that he was in 2016. Y'all are, y'all are foolish. Y'all are silly. Y'all are unrealistic. Congratulations. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Since beating Eddie Alvarez, November 12th, 2016 at UFC 205 at Madison Square Garden. What has he done? What has he done? T- tell me why I should be excited about Conor McGregor fighting. Why? Don't no 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 don't don't give me the talk don't give me the bullshit that he's charismatic and he's a good trash talker and he can sell a fight no 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 why why should I take my time to see the Conor McGregor of 2021 fight or why should I invest any energy or any passion or any emotion into believing into thinking that Conor McGregor is still a guy who can win a championship in one of the weight classes tell me why give me any type of evidence. Show me something. And I know for you to do that, you have to dig and you have to claw and you have to bullshit and you have to rearrange yourself and you have to put yourself in the pretzel pretzel to come up with some bullshit nonsense about, well, you know, against DP, you know, he did hit him once hard and, you know, kind of rocked him a little bit. And for the first part of the fight, he was doing pretty well. I mean, yeah, he was losing, but he wasn't getting his ass kicked. So, I mean, that's something that could happen. And, you know, now he'll break his tibia and he'll realize this that and the other and it'll come back even stronger and even wiser and now he's more hungrier than ever and you know you'll you'll come up with anything you'll come up with any type of nonsense to make you believe that conor mcgregor is going to come back to the lightweight division and do something in terms of being a true contender for for a championship but it's not going to happen it ain't going to happen shouldn't happen he doesn't deserve doesn't deserve it now, of course, we're speaking about an organization, the UFC, speaking of he doesn't deserve it. We are speaking about an organization that once tried to, uh, in the near future, or in, in, not too long ago, wanted to put a heavyweight fight between Brock Lesnar and Daniel Cormier together. So, you know, clowns at the clown show, trying to put something in in terms of, you know, it's entertainment, it sells business. You know what sells, you know what sells well? 
You know what's great entertainment? Having two really, really good fighters going off against each other, fighting each other. That's the basis of what would make a really strong organization. And the UFC is making bank. The UFC is uh, making great money. The UFC is doing well. Strong argument that the UFC is more popular than boxing. You can, you can do all those things. So maybe that blueprint of you know putting together, quote-unquote, the best fights, putting on the Randy Couture's versus James Tony, putting on the CM Punk's versus whoever in one of the main event stats, uh, one of the main events, uh, you know, places, stances on the uh, card. Maybe all that nonsense, maybe all that bullshit, maybe I'm wrong about that. But to me, for long-term success and continuing long-term success and in increasing your visibility and your value within that sport is to come up with true, real champions, contenders, and then market them that way. And you'll be amazed about how, you know, not every fighter has the same personality. And not every fighter needs to be a Conor McGregor. Not every fighter needs to uh, run his mouth. Not every fighter needs to portray himself as being a racist like Kobe Covington and say stupid ass shit. You know, you, you can be a GSP or you can be one of these guys who were a good draw and, and not be that way. Just by being a damn good fighter. What about that? How about that? But no, the UFC is going to stick with this Conor McGregor bullshit. Talking about, you know, once McGregor is fully rehabbed and ready to go and fight again, that somehow, some way, we think a fourth fight between him and Dustin Poirier is going to be something that we want to watch. I'm not interested in watching it. I had no interest in watching the third fight. I could take a look at the second fight and realize that Dustin Poirier was a far better fighter. I could have taken a listen to at the press conference leading up to the fight with Conor McGregor running his mouth to let myself know, to let anybody with a brain know that Conor McGregor doesn't believe in himself in this fight against Poirier. The more bullshit, the more asinine things, the more stupid things you say, the more nonsense that you talk tells me that you really don't believe that you can win. Remember when Mike Tyson was up there and he was a fighter and people were still talking about Iron Mike Tyson and, you know, despite this loss and despite all these type of things and despite all the evidence that he was through being a true contender for a championship, the two losses to Evander Holyfield basically sealed the deal in terms of him being a fighter who could win championship. But again, people being dumb, people being gullible, people being foolish, still believing that Mike Tyson could still turn things around. All he needed to do was get himself a new trainer. All he needed to do was get rid of Don King. All he needed to do was, uh, you know, be dedicated. All he needed to do was just, you know, get on a roll and all this type of stuff. All these folks making excuses for Mike Tyson on why we should still believe that Mike Tyson is a guy who could win a championship, right? Remember the stupidity from people talking about that? And... So he was going to fight Lennox Lewis and he fought some guy and he beat him and, you know, praise do the Allah. I'm going to have his heart. I'm going to eat his children and all this type of nonsense, even though at the time Lennox Lewis didn't have any children and Tyson was talking all that crap and Mike Tyson was talking all that bullshit and all that nonsense. And then they had the uh, face off for the um, promotion of the fight and Tyson swung at uh, Lennox Lewis and missed him by a mile. But he swung at him and started a brawl on the stage and all that kind of stuff. And everybody was talking about, oh, Mike's got his edge back and all this kind of nonsense. I mean, how fucking stupid can you be? That had nothing to do with, oh, that he got his edge back and all that kind of stuff. That was a guy who was looking to try to get his way out of a fight. 
And if anybody had a brain in their head and had eyes in their vision in their eyes, could see when Mike Tyson was walking down that ramp, when Mike Tyson was walking down to face Lennox Lewis, his facial expression showed that he wanted nothing to do with that man. And he knew that he was going in to get his ass whooped. He knew that he was going to be getting a spanking and an ass whooping going into that fight. But because of the money, because he was Mike Tyson, there was no turning back. That's the same damn thing with Conor McGregor. Conor McGregor knows that he couldn't be Dustin Poirier. Conor McGregor knew this. So the only thing Conor McGregor tried to do was to get into his head, was to try to uh, outsight him. And then in meantime, and in doing that, maybe fool himself into thinking that I had a chance against Dustin Poirier. So when you're desperate and you start saying stupid shit like I'm going to kill this guy and he's dead and all this other nonsense and all this other bullshit, you know that this is a man for the most part who wants nothing to do with this guy and you knew he was going to lose. So you can talk about the first three minutes, the first four. Ooh, Connor looked good. Ooh, Connor was doing some leg kicks. Ooh, Connor was doing this, that, and the other. You could come in with a bullshit excuse before the fight started talking about, oh, well, you know, Connor was training for a boxing match, so he really didn't take DP seriously and all this kind of stuff. But now, since, you know, he's not worried about boxing anymore and he had a camp dedicated to doing his mixed martial arts stuff that, you know, he's going to be ready and he's going to be doing this and he's going to be getting revenge. And then you listen to McGregor talk and you're simple-minded and you believe that bullshit that he's saying that, ooh, you know, the old Conor McGregor is back. The second time or the first time in seven years, whatever you want to say, the first time that he lost to Poirier, you know, McGregor was too nice. He was too congenial. He wasn't himself. You know, that's not that's not Mad Mac. That's not the guy that we knew. That's not the guy who won championships. That's not the guy who was the two-time champion. That's not the guy who knocked out Jose Aldo in 13 seconds. That's not the guy who destroyed Eddie Alvarez. That wasn't the Conor McGregor we knew. Conor McGregor was being too nice. He was being too gentle. He was being too soft. He was being too PC. We need the old McGregor back. And for this third fight against Poirier, you got the old McGregor, right? Spouting off bullshit, spouting off nonsense, winning the press conference, conference and all that kind of nonsense. That shit might have worked when you're 24, 25 and hungry and the shit that you're saying, half of it you mean, but when you lose, when you A, get knocked out by the guy you're fighting before, B, you haven't won a fight in years except for one against Cerrone, and C, you're super duper rich and your passion and your desire has already been met. Now, there's the revenge factor, the fact of the competition and all those type of things that bleed into your existence for wanting to be a fighter. At heart, you really are just a fighter. But when you've reached all of those heights and you're facing a guy that you know you have doubts in whether you can beat this guy, what's, what's going to be my... I would love to hear. I would love to see. I would love to be around. I would love to talk to you honestly and sincerely about Conor McGregor, after all of the bullshit, after all of the, your wife is in my DMs, after all of these, I'll be back, after all of these, I'm going to get this ain't over and all this kind of bullshit and all this kind of talk, away from the nonsense, away from the crowd, away from the attention seeking, away from all of that stuff, away from putting the camera on me, I would love to sit there and talk to McGregor and be like, you you know this is all for show, You, you know that you can't beat this guy. I mean, you know you can't. Now, there's some fighters like Daniel Cormier who he said himself, he's like, look, I'm stubborn. 
I'm dumb enough to think that, you know, if I fought John Jones 20 times and lost 20 times in a row, that the 21st time I was really sincerely believed that this time I'm actually going to beat him. I mean, there are fighters like that. But, you know, have you, when was the last time you heard Cormier in a press conference do some shit where you just kind of thought to yourself, man, this guy doesn't have a fucking chance. This guy knows that he doesn't have a fucking chance. This guy knows that if his opponent is in the right frame of mind, he has no shot. Every fighter talks trash. Every fighter is going to sit there and say, yeah, I think I'm going to win the fight. But the bullshit and the nonsense that McGregor was talking, just, just not happening. You can't get in people's head anymore, Connor, when people know that you're beatable. You know, that, that nonsense doesn't work. And Poirier knew it. First time they fought, McGregor was talking all that shit. Dustin said it himself. He was immature. He let the talking get to him. It became more about shutting him up than winning the fight. And how about that? Shame on me. I, didn't, I, uh, I, I lost because of that. Second time around, look, man, I've been through the wars. I'm older. I have a kid. I have a wife. I have a life. I do other things. You know what I mean? I'm mature. I'm a grown man. So now I understand what McGregor's doing, and fuck that bullshit. I'm confident now to know that I can win. Back then, I was immaturely confident to know that I would win, but I really wasn't knowledgeable. I wasn't educated enough to know that I could win. Now, because of my experience, now because of the fights that I've had, now that the challenges that I've gone through, not just in the octagon in life and where I stand as a human being as of right now, now as a mature, fully grown adult, I know I can win this fight. So now all of this nonsense you're speaking about, I can use that not as something to motivate me, but something for wisdom to let them know that, let me know that I, this guy is feeling that he can't beat me. This guy is talking so much shit. This guy is talking like he probably thinks that, you know what, I don't, I don't think I can beat this guy straight up. So somehow, someway, I got to get into this guy's head and talk and this, that, and the other. And that's what happened. So what, what's the fourth fight going to be? What the fourth fight going to be about? Why? Why would tell? Give me a compelling reason why to watch that fight. A guy in McGregor who's going to be thirty-three years old, coming off a major injury. He had he's won one fight in by that time six years. Again, he'll be thirty-three years old. He'll be fighting one of the best, if not the best, lightweight in the world. One of the best pound-for-pound fighters in the world. Tell me a reason why I should watch that fight. Tell me the interest other than an upset that could happen that would be monumental. Other than that, tell me why I should be interested in this fight. Tell me why I should watch this fight. Tell me why you think McGregor would really have a chance against Dustin Poirier. Now, look, a year or whenever he would get back into the octagon, a year in the UFC or in MMA is a lifetime. We don't know. As of right now, Dustin Poirier is one of the top lightweights in the world. And he's one of the, I was, would say, top 10 pound-for-pound pound fighters, mixed martial artists in the world. In the world, As of July of 2021, man, we could be looking at May of 2022 and, and Poirier could be on a two or three fight losing streak. Who knows, man? He could, his next fight is going to be against Charles Oliveira. He could lose against Oliveira and then in his next fight take a loss. Who knows? Who knows? That's the UFC, man. One minute we're speaking about the Leota Machida era and he's going to be unstoppable to all of a sudden now Michael Bisbane is beating Luke Rockholt, who beat the guy who beat Anderson Silva and we thought Chris Weidman was going to go down as one of the greatest middleweights of all time. 
We spoke about Stipe Miocic being the greatest heavyweight of all time. The man had, what, three or four defenses before getting knocked out by Francis Ngannou. These things happen quickly. Champions in the sport, for the most part, they're not there for years. They don't hold their belts for years, for the most part. Some do. Most don't. When you're speaking about a lightweight division, which has such guys as Oliveira, Justin Gaethje, and others, there's no guarantee that um, Dustin Poirier is going to George St. Pierre or Anderson Silva or John Jones, that division, up until Conor McGregor is ready for him to fight again. So, I, you know, I, I, that, I have zero interest. And, okay, let's say, for instance, they do fight for the fourth time and Poirier wins. McGregor already had the built-in excuse. I'm coming off a major knee injury. It's my first fight back after breaking my tibia, fibia, and ankle. Of course I'm going to be a little rusty. I haven't fought in almost a year. I bet you if I fight him again, I'll beat him. I want a fifth time, right? We can listen to that nonsense. And there's enough sycophants, there's enough jackasses, there's enough fools to sit there and be like, yeah, yeah. Look, he lost to the best lightweight in the world after coming off major injury in his first fight back. Yeah. I hadn't fought in almost a year. Yeah. Yeah. Fight him again, Connor. You'll get him this time. <laughs> you know, Jesus. And if Connor McGregor wins, that means what? The rivalry is going to be two and two. So what? We're going to have a fifth fight to find out who's the better fighter. So a uh, fourth fight could then lead to a fifth fight if McGregor wins. And even if McGregor wins, all of a sudden you say, well, that's it. We're done. Well, damn. So you're going to extend that opportunity for McGregor to get even in the series, but yet on yet in turn, you're not going to allow Poirier to do that. Doesn't make any sense to me. It's ridiculous. I'm tired of Conor McGregor. I've said it before. I said it for years. When that clown won the championship from Eddie Alvarez, the whole two belts. By the way, you know, he never defended the featherweight belt. He never did. So when he beat um, Jose Aldo, didn't defend it, didn't give Aldo a, another chance. Then he beat Alvarez, holding the belts at the same time. Then he said, you know what? I, I need some time off. I just had my wife or my girlfriend or the mother of my child just had my child. And I want to spend some time with my child and this, that, the other. And I, you know, I've given you guys solids because, you know, I, I've gone ahead and filled some bills and done what you wanted me to do. And, you know, uh, highlighted some cards and all this type of stuff. And so, you know, you owe me this. You owe, you owe me some time off, right? So I can be with my family, right? Remember when McGregor was saying that shit? after he uh, beat Eddie Alvarez to uh, get the uh, lightweight belt, right? So instead of uh, spending time with a newborn, what did he do? He started negotiating a fight with Floyd Mayweather, which then that farce, that, that bullshit that happened. So right there, nothing happened to him. Still kept the belt. I don't know how long McGregor had the featherweight belt, but, uh, you know, he held two belts, hostage for a long time and because we don't want to piss off connor because you know we won't want to upset the cash cow we got to acquiesce and do what he says fuck that bullshit i would have been like look man if you want to go ahead and take some time off 
You want to go ahead and spend some time with your newborn? You want to go ahead and do all those things? Fantastic. We'll see you back in six months. If you're not back in six months, you're vacating both of those titles. If you want to go ahead and make a couple of hundred million dollars fighting Floyd Mayweather, go for it. But guess what you're not going to be doing? You're not going to be holding two belts. We're not going to be holding two belts, two championship belts in obscurity because you want to go ahead and do what you want to do. No, no, no. This is the fucking UFC. You don't own the UFC. The Fertitas own the UFC. I fucking make the decisions around here, not you. And if that pisses you off and that does something else and you want to get the fuck out of here, go to Bellator. Go to Bellator. If, if, if you think you're all high and mighty, you think that you're bigger than the UFC and all that kind of bullshit, A, you're not going to be getting any percentage or stakes into the company. B, you are an employee here, a very valued employee, a highly thought of employee, but you are just an employee. You don't write checks. You receive them from us. So this is the plan. I'm in control here. When it comes to the UFC and what we do, I'm in control, not you. So you're either going to fight in six months or else you're going to give up the belts. Period. End of discussion. And if you want to go to Japan and find a... um. MMA promotion that'll have you, go for it. If you want to go to Bellator and have and fight for that company, go for it. Try to make the same amount of money and have the same type of influence and have the same type of notoriety and have the same type of shine on you that you can go. If you can get that somewhere else, go for it. But you ain't running this fucking company. I am. That would be the conversation that the UFC, Dana White, the Fertitas, should have had with Conor McGregor as soon as he won that belt and was talking about, I need some time off. Sure, no problem. We'll see you in six months. We'll start negotiating your next fight in three. Well, I want to do this. I want to do that. Well, if you're not back in six months, guess what? They've done that to fighters before, right? They've done that to fighters before. They just did that to our Francis Ngannou, the heavyweight champ. Now we've got Mark Hunt. Or Mark, uh, gee, Mark, uh, um, uh, Mark Henry. Not Mark Henry. What the fuck is name? Derek Henry. Wow, how about that? They've got Derek Lewis. <laughs> How many Henrys and Lewis's and am I going to go through? No, but they got the, the they got the black bear from Houston, Texas, fighting some clown for the interim heavyweight title because they wanted Ngannou to fight in August, and Ngannou and his people were like, "Look, man, I just got back to the states a couple of months ago. From uh, you know, can you can you give me some time? I'll be able to fight in September. Can you give me some time?" And the UFC said no, so now they're going to be fighting for the interim belt. So they've done it before. They stripped folks of their title before. They stripped John Jones of his lightweight title. So, you know, you couldn't do that to Conor McGregor? Let me tell you something. If, if Conor McGregor had that type of power, if you had Conor McGregor holding you guys hostage like that, don't talk to me about how strong your promotion was. Because if you're going to let one guy do that, I don't give a fuck who he is. Your promotion isn't as strong. Your business is not as strong as everybody thinks it is. Or you claim it to be. And how about that? Once once Conor McGregor left, how about that? The UFC continued to roll on, continued to grow, continued to become more powerful, continued to make more money. Conor McGregor not fighting all of a sudden didn't fold up shop, didn't fold the UFC's uh, tent. They uh, managed and they got better at it. So this guy, Conor McGregor, fuck him. Have no fucking interest. Don't worry about it. In the year that Conor McGregor is out, don't worry about it. The, the, the sport will be just fine. Sport ain't going nowhere. Sport ain't going to lose money. 
Venues will not be closing up. There'll still be big fights. There'll still be be big pay-per-views. No, don't worry about it. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Sick and fucking tired of Conor McGregor, man. Just sick and fucking tired. That's what happens when you give an adolescent the ability to uh, do what he wants to do over the past couple of years. That's what happens. When you let a child, uh, when you're the adult and you let the child tell you what he wants to do and you acquiesce to that, well, you know, we, we, we see what happens with the life of Conor McGregor. Since beating Alvarez, you know that he's had, speaking of McGregor, he's had more arrests than UFC or boxing victories combined. Let's take a look at the rap sheet here. Let, 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 let's go ahead and take a look at the almighty Conor McGregor. This fucking walking train wreck outside of the ring and octagon since he became a public figure, a global superstar. Let's, let's see the life of Conor McGregor. He won at life, right? He's rich, he's famous, he's a superstar, this, that, and the other. But let's, let's see, he should be happy beyond means. He should be like living the life. We're all, we should all be jealous of Conor McGregor, right? The guy's got generational wealth. He'll never have to worry about a dime for the rest of his life. He'll never have to work. He'll never have to do all these things, right? So he should be, he's got a beautiful girlfriend or wife or whatever. He's got a child. He's got homes. He's got property. He's got all of this stuff, right? So this guy should just be living life. This guy should just be the toast of the town. This guy should be the fruit of the loom. This guy should just be just like, you know, loving every minute that he's on this planet, right? Well, let's let's take a look at some of the stupidity. Let's take a look at some of the nonsense. Let's take a look at some of the thuggish activities. Let's take a look at some of the embarrassment. Let's take a look at some of the clown show antics and thuggish antics and fell and lonely and um, uh, atrocious uh, instances that has happened with Conor McGregor, April 5th. 2018, during a promotional appearance for UFC 223, McGregor and a group of about 20 of his thuggish friends attempted to uh, confront um, Khabib Nurmagomedov, who was on a bus leaving the arena with other UFC fighters. McGregor ran alongside the bus, ran past it to grab a metal equipment dolly, which he then threw at the bus's window before trying to throw other objects in the vicinity. Remember that bullshit in UFC? Other fighters in the bus, some of them were injured by the shattered glass, sent to the hospital, and then removed from the car. Remember that nonsense? McGregor and others involved initially fled the Barcase Center after the incident, but turned themselves in that night and was charged with three counts of assault and one count of criminal mischief. Way to go, Connor. He pleaded no contest to a count of disorderly conduct and was ordered to perform five days of community service and attend anger management classes. You know, when you're rich like that, and you got the skin tone like that, you can get yourself off like that. You know, you can you can buy your way out of uh, trouble if you uh, got that type of clout in this country. March 11th, 2019, he was arrested, speaking of McGregor, outside of the Felton Blue Mot- uh, Hotel in Miami Beach, Florida, after an altercation in which McGregor was alleged to have taken a man's phone and smashed it on the ground. <laughs> Remember that? McGregor was arrested and charged with strong armed robbery and criminal mischief. Only gets better. August 15th, 2019, TMZ Sports published a video that showed McGregor punching an older man at the Marble Arch Pub in Dublin. McGregor was charged with assault and first appeared in court on October 11th of that same year. McGregor had repeatedly offered the victim a shot of his whiskey, which the victim repeatedly denied that McGregor uh, punched him. Remember that? Remember that wonderful instance? Oh, on September 10th, 2020, 
McGregor was arrested at the Corsica on suspicion of attempted sexual assault and indecent exposure for the incident alleged to have taken place in the bar. Now, eight months later, French authorities dropped the investigation due to insufficient evidence, but another embarrassing moment, another time Conor McGregor was in the news for the wrong reasons. You know? So, so, so tell me again why this guy should be the face of your organization. Tell me again if this was a baseball player, if this was a basketball player, if this was a footballer, if this was one of these guys. Tell me, tell me again why we should be cheering this guy. Why we should be, uh, you know, lauding over this guy. Lord knows if all of this bullshit happened to LeBron James, do you know how much people would just be destroying this guy? If this shit happened to Tom Brady, do you know how much people would be destroying this guy? If this happened to Mike Trout, do you know how much people would be destroying this guy? But with Conor McGregor, it's, hey, no big deal. Maybe it's the fighter in him. Maybe it's the fact that, you know, he's in a sport which violence, punishment, pain is the prerequisite that maybe this type of stuff is like, well, you know, anybody who gets into this, you have to be a little bit nutty. But, you know, please give me a fucking break. So show me the on here on Wendell's World and Sports the Podcast with your host, Wendell Wallace. Show me the argument. Tell me the argument. Give me the argument. Why McGregor is still a real player to fight for the championship and win it. Tell me a reason why he's better than Charles Oliveira. Tell me a reason why he can beat Michael Chandler. Tell me a reason why he can stand up against Justin Gaethje. Tell me a reason why he can beat uh, Daniil Barayush. Tell me. I'm listening. Tell me why he should be more deserving to fight for the championship over those guys. Tell me. Why? Because he can talk a lot of shit. Why? Because he can talk a lot of smack. Oh, no, pay-per-view numbers, pay-per-view numbers. Hey, you had an opportunity to make a star out of Justin Gaethje. You passed. You had a chance to make a, you have a chance now to make a uh, star out of Charles Oliveira. What the fuck are you doing? You're worried about some has-been? You're worried about some, some, some guy who's five years past his prime? Why? Because he can talk a lot of shit and say a lot of stupid-ass things? That's the reason why? That's how you're going to grow your business? That's how you're going to make your business scale work? This is how you're going to make your promotion better? Conor McGregor, the, the company needs you. The company don't need you, motherfucker. Where the fuck you been for the last five years? Where you're not fucking getting yourself in trouble with the law? UFC's been doing just fucking fine. We don't need your ass. It hasn't been struggling without you. And why do we need your ass? Why? So you can, so we can watch you lose? What other division, if not lightweight, could McGregor fight for to get a title shot? Tell me. He's going to be coming back at age 33. McGregor can't make featherweight at that age. He barely made it when he was in his physical prime. And that's basically when he was at his best when he was at featherweight. And even if he could get down to featherweight, for the fighting public, what would be the only interesting fight to make? Him versus Max Holloway. Alexander Volkanovsky is currently the champion. That's not going to be getting anybody. To, that's not going to move the needle. I don't think McGregor is going to sacrifice for that fight, even if he is the champion. The the most money to make if he was going to go down to featherweight would be that fight against Max Holloway. The best fight to promote and make and generate the buzz and the interest if he was to go down to featherweight, speaking of McGregor, would be against Max Holloway, who's currently not the champion. And as I mentioned before, McGregor at that age, at his age and at his stage in life, you really think he's going to uh, sacrifice to get back down to 145? Don't think so. We've already talked about lightweight. Would he have a chance against the best welterweights in the world? Fuck no. 
if he can't take a punch from Dustin Poirier, what's he, what's he going to do against Kamara Usman or Colby Covington or Gilbert Ferns or Jorge Masvidal or Stephen Thompson, Leon Edwards? He doesn't. He's not going to go through that nonsense. Kamara Usman would beat the living shit out of him, take him down and wrestle him and beat the shit out of him. You think that McGregor could take a punch from Jorge Masvidal? You think that, even though I hate to say it, you think that um, McGregor could go at the same pace as a, as a Colby Covington? Of course not. You think he had the skill and the power to match someone like Leon Edwards? Of course he doesn't. So the featherweight championship out of the picture, lightweight probably not going to happen, and he definitely has no chance at welterweight. Now, if he wants to fight uh, Nate Diaz at welterweight, fine. If you want to put on those type of, if you want to fight a Robbie Lawler, if you want to fight a Nate Diaz, if you want to fight that that level of opponent, fine. But last time I checked, those guys aren't championship level opponents either. Long periods of greatness don't happen, as I mentioned before, very often in MMA. You want to know why Anderson Silva, Matt Hughes, my man GSP, John Jones, Fedor, Amanda Nunez, Demetrius Johnson, Chris Cyborg. You know why they're considered all-time greats of MMA? Because Valentina Shinshenko. You know why? Because of their dominance over a period of a, of a long while. That hasn't happened to Conor McGregor. Conor McGregor had three unbelievable, fabulous years. Took MMA to the next level. Took the UFC to the next level. Brought the UFC to the mainstream. All of those things, yes. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. But, sorry, as far as a fighter is concerned, he peaked too early when you're considering him being the all-time great. Now, if he can go ahead and shut me the fuck up and win a championship, then we can start talking about him being on the Mount Rushmore of all-time great MMA fighters. But do you do you really think that's going to be happening right now? Conor McGregor made a whole lot of money. Good for fucking him. You know what? Who else made a whole lot, bunch of money when, during their days? Oscar De La Hoya. De La Hoya was a guy who brought boxing to the uh, masses, who brought boxing to the sporting public, who brought boxing to the casual fans, who brought the sport to a whole new audience. You think he's better than Marvin Hagler? No. You think he's better than Tito Trinidad? No, you think he's better than Bernard Hopkins? No, do you think he's better than um, Shane Mosley? No. Do you think he's better than Parnell Whitaker? No. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, for the sport, hey man, no one was a bigger draw during this day than Oscar De La Hoya. Oscar De La Hoya could have fought me and they would have sold 1.5 million pay-per-view buys just to see him knock me out in 15 seconds or less. That's great. That doesn't make him the greatest fighter of, of all time or doesn't make him one of the great fighters of all time just because he was a great draw just because of whether it was his looks or his background or his mouth or whatever you know do you think he's better than Julio Cesar Chavez no you think he's better speaking just just based on I know he's Mexican-American but I mean De La Hoya just speaking about all the all great fighters in, in from Mexico of Mexican descent is he better than Salvador Sanchez? No. Is he better than Julio Cesar Chavez? No. Is he better than Eric Morales? Okay, maybe. Marco Antonio Barrera? Okay, maybe. Um, Canelo Alvarez? To be determined, but right now, it looks like on the passing lane that Canelo Alvarez is coming up quickly on Oscar De La Hoya's career. 
So, yeah, Oscar De La Hoya was great for the sport. He was awesome for the sport. For a while there, he was the man. But, you know, coming up small in big fights means that if we're speaking about the all-time great fighters or the all-time greats within that era, Oscar De La Hoya, based on his fighting, is not there. Same thing with Conor McGregor. Hey, man, Conor McGregor ran through, rip-roared, beat everybody, knocked out the great Jose Aldo at the time, hadn't been knocked out, hadn't been beat in almost a decade, ruled the featherweight division in WEC and UFC for a while. So, hell yeah, man, for, you know, it looked like three, four years that maybe uh, maybe the um, McGregor was going to be on his way to becoming one of those guys to becoming a John Jones, to becoming a Chris Cyborg, to becoming uh, Anderson Silva, to becoming a Demetrius Johnson, to becoming one of those guys. But when everything is all said and done, I can't base three years of greatness from McGregor and compare that to or put him on the same level as those who dominated and were great for a longer period of time. McGregor beat a lot of money. Fantastic, awesome, wonderful. That doesn't mean that when it comes to the art of fighting for a promotion that you should be considered one of the greatest, even though you were a great talker, even though you were a great promoter. Hell, that was the case. Chael Sonnen should be considered a lot better than what he actually is. If we're just bringing in, you know, how someone performs on the mic and how someone can sell a fight, I don't give a fuck about someone selling the fight. You know what sells me on the fight? Can the guy fight or not? That sells me on the fucking fight. So that's how I come up with my thoughts and opinions about fucking Conor McGregor. All that trash talking, all that bullshit and everything, man, when he was knocking out Jose Aldo and Holloway and Poirier the first time and all of these great fighters and still talking shit, and all right, I'm, I can uh, I can understand that. But when you're no longer that fighter and you're still talking that shit, uh, you can go fuck yourself seven ways to sunshine. I don't even know that phrase, but you know what I'm talking about. So, uh... Yeah, good uh, good win for Poirier. Conor McGregor moving forward. Don't know. And at this point, I really don't care. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Recording this on a Tuesday mid-morning. Getting ready in a few hours to watch the uh, USA basketball team. I guess they're playing Argentina, right? See what they're going to be doing in this game. But uh, sticking with the flow of basketball, 
As I mentioned before in the first segment of my podcast that I'm a big fan in July of coming going out to uh, some of the high school gyms out here and watching some really good AAU basketball, boys basketball, seeing which seeing which players are being recruited by Georgetown, seeing which players are really good, seeing what players are one and dones, that type of thing. So I'm looking forward in the next couple of days or week or a week or so to go out. See what I can see, but I uh, got some high school basketball news of importance. As I mentioned before, it's not only going to affect the college game, but it's even going to affect the NBA game. And I think there's a reason why I think this news is going to be important, particularly considering the NBA. High school basketball powerhouses from all sides of the country are going to be forming a league of their own to begin in the 2021-2022 season, this season. Six of the biggest high school basketball powerhouses, including Oak Hill Academy in Virginia, Montrevert, Mount Verde Academy in Florida, are forming an elite national league set to begin in the 2021-22 season. The National Interscholastic Basketball Conference will feature traditional powers, Oak Hill, Mount Verde, IMG Academy in Florida, La La Mer School in Indiana, Sunrise Christian Academy in Kansas, the Wasatch Academy in Utah, pretty new, along with two other schools yet to be announced. Excuse me. Um, the eight teams will play a 10-game regular season, play in special NIBC events, and hold a postseason tournament. There are plans to potentially expand the league in the upcoming years. If you're speaking, if you're thinking, if you're prospecting on what other basketball high school basketball powerhouses would be joining a league like this with the schools that I just mentioned. I mean, you could take a look at the school, the Matha High School, Morgan Wooten, rest in peace, Heightsville, Maryland. They could join a program like Sierra Canyon, where I think LeBron James is a kid, Bronny. He goes to school and plays there. Matter Day in Southern California. Bishop Gorman, right out here in Vegas. They've been nationally ranked for years upon years upon years. And of course, Simeon High School in Chicago. Those are just some of the really good basketball program throughout the country in the high school program in the high school in high schools that I'm throwing out there in terms of what other teams could possibly join the league that features these type of schools. Now the league's six teams have combined to win the past eight national championships with Montverde winning five times. You know, it's uh it's uh it's a situation where, you know, I I can see where they're coming from. Because I, I remember out here, not only did they have Bishop Gorman, but they also had this school out here called Finley Prep. Bull, uh, Manute Bowles kid, Bull Bull, went there. Avery Bradley went to school there. A couple of other players who were one and done and then were first-round draft picks in the NBA. Another high-profile basketball players transferred from other schools to uh, go to this school, Finley Prep, out here in Henderson. And um, there were just basketball academies. And basically what you did was you played basketball, you went around the country, you played these games, but it was basketball-centric in terms of everything was focused around basketball, you went to school and such, got your education, got your degree that way, so it was a quote-unquote high school, no doubt about it, but it was mainly there for teaching you basketball, the fundamentals of basketball, the competition of going up against your fellow teammates every day in practice and getting better that way. And again, they would bring in the best high school basketball prospects that they could find from all over the country. So they were bringing in kids like Finley Prep. They were bringing in kids from Minnesota and Georgia and just all over the country to go ahead and to uh, 
play for the school. I think Finley Prep disbanded a couple of years ago, but I remember when they played Bishop Gorman, that they would play the, they would play it down at the, uh, I don't know what arena it was. I know they played in a place where it would get five or 6,000 people to go uh, watch those teams play. So, I mean, the, the, the really good powerhouse basketball programs are um, starting to get together and say, you know what, for the betterment of these basketball teams, because a lot of times when you check the schedule that these teams play, the Damathas, the Sierra Canyons, the Oak Hills, they're playing against really good teams. They're playing in really good tournaments, and sometimes they will play against each other during the regular season. But for the most part, a lot of these teams are playing against schools where they're beating like, you know, 100 to 25, you know, some nonsense like that. So a lot of the teams that they're playing against, some public, some non-public, I know out here in uh, Vegas that uh, Bishop Gorman, they play against the uh, public schools out here in uh, out here in their division, and, you know, they wax through them because high school basketball out here is really not that great, as I mentioned before, except for uh, Bishop Gorman. So there really is no competition, and even – when they win the state title and they play a school from the north, I mean, except for Luke Babbitt a couple of years ago, I mean, up in uh, Reno and those places for the most part, they really don't have a lot of high-profile basketball players or high-profile basketball teams that would give a school like Bishop Gorman, which goes out and recruits a lot of his players to move to this area so they can go to school here, really doesn't give them the competition to go out and uh, be competitive against these teams. If you think about Bishop Gorman, the football team, they're really a uh, team that's been a powerhouse. In fact, Tony Sanchez, who was the coach during their heyday, was the coach for the UNLV football team. He got that promotion from you know what he did, the prowess and the strength and the accomplishments of him being the coach at Bishop Gorman that landed him a job at a Division One football program, even though there's an argument if you really want to consider UNLV to be a Division One football team. But needless to say, you get programs like that. Bishop Gorman, I think it's an outrageous amount of money to uh, go to school there. It's a private school, beautiful campus up in the southwest side of um, Las Vegas. But, uh, yeah, they go out and they recruit really good basketball players and bring them in. Again, those are the type of teams that I could see joining those leagues. And I always thought... That for the betterment of these basketball players and these basketball programs, that if, you know, there's enough teams out there to where, you know, they could schedule, if they wanted to schedule, get a good seven, eight, ten games playing against these type of players and playing against these type of programs every single year and not have to fill the majority of their schedule with teams that, you know, they're going to run ramp shot on, then it's really an unfair fight because of the fact that, you know, when you're dealing with high school kids and you're dealing with high school basketball programs at your regular public high school, they're getting kids from that region, from that zone. And you see these other basketball powerhouses, they're getting these five-star recruits from all over the country. So it's a good thing. I would I would watch them play. I know that, uh, you know, for really good basketball teams that they put it on ESPN U. Uh, a lot of times when they have uh, really good basketball teams, high school basketball teams play as long as, as well as football teams, I, I think there could be a market for something like this. And I think it would be great for these programs to do this, kind of level out the, the playing field. So that would be something that I would be interested in watching and reviewing and seeing and doing all those type of things. So Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Similar news. Regarding elite basketball prospects, 
speaking about you know players, elite basketball prospects who have the who would have the opportunity to play at a Mount Verde, um, a um, Oak Hill, and those type of things. Five star point guard Sterling Scoot Henderson is going to join the NBA G League Ignite next season. Sterling Scoot Henderson, that's his name, the number seven prospect in the ESPN class of 2022 recruiting rankings. Played his high school basketball at Keele High School in Marietta, Georgia. Has signed with the NBA's G League Ignite program, but the same team that had Jonathan Kaminga and Isaiah Todd and Jalen Green and those guys. The, that's, uh, he's going to be joining those guys. Henderson is the first high school junior to commit to the Ignite program. Mainly, it's you know if you didn't want to go to college, you would go ahead and join the uh, G League Ignite team. Now we're speaking about you know guys who you know haven't even age-wise finished high school yet. Now, Henderson has finished all of his coursework and graduated a year early from school because graduation is a prerequisite for joining the G League Ignite. But just as far as age-wise is concerned, a guy who was trying to accelerate his graduation from high school so he can go ahead and start his professional career. Henderson will not be eligible for the NBA draft until the year 2022 and is committed to spend two years with the Ignite program Basically, as I mentioned before, you know, uh, concentrating on basketball. Interesting, interesting. Also, Michael Foster of Hillcrest Prep in Arizona. Jaden Hardy, the number two prospect in the 2021 high school class. They've announced their intentions to join the uh, join the G League Ignite team, even though they haven't officially signed a contract. Then you have Matt and Ryan Brewery. Brulee, jeez, 6'9 Twins. They're the first high school juniors to join Overtime Elite League. The Florida Twins are ranked among the top 15 high school juniors in the country, and they are the first prep underclassmen to sign contracts with the with an American Professional Basketball League. What is this called? The Overtime Elite League. Exactly what is that? What is the Overtime Elite League? It's... Uh, it's created, it's a league created for players between 16 and 18 years old who are looking to, who are looking for a professional option that covers their final high school years and the one-year wait period between high school and the NBA draft without having to leave this country. Mm-hmm. Interesting. The only reason why I'm bringing this up, because A, it's going to affect the college basketball and one of the reasons why college basketball, college sports in general, basically had to go with the NIL, name, image, and likeness, to try to deter some of these guys because these guys are going to be getting paid. These guys are going to be getting paid six figures. So, you know, colleges have to combat that to say that, you know, why would you want to go ahead and go to these leagues? Yeah, you're going to be getting paid. But if you're going to, going to be good enough to go to the NBA, you're going to get paid. So you might as well go to college. You might as well get the exposure. You might as well do that while also making some money off of your name and likeness because now in college, you can go ahead and do that. The, the, the duty league that we're speaking about here, I mean, what is going to be their foundation? How long is this going to last? What are they going to be their sponsors? Do they have a TV contract? What are, the, what are all these things entail? I think the G, the G Select Ignite team, I mean, that's always going to be around, but this new league that these twins, overtime elite that these twins are going to, one is ranked number three by ESPN in the class of 2023, 
And the other one is ranked number 12. They said they're going to forgo their high school and college eligibility to join the startup league in September for contracts that are expected to pay them each seven figures over the two-year range of the deals. So basically, if you're one of these guys and you're thinking about this, are you going to be going to, uh, or anybody else who are going to be negotiating with this league, if they say they're going to be giving them a two-year contract, a one-year contract worth $150,000, if a player that good who's getting those type of offers from professional sports leagues or professional basketball leagues, are they going to then go to on their high school recruiting trip to be like, you know what, I got this uh, school offer me or I got this uh, professional league offer me 150 grand. Is there any way that you can um, come close? Is there any way that you can uh, get me to that number? What are we going to do here? What are we going to be talking about? Those things are going to be more prevalent in talking about whether a player is going to be going to their school more than say, what does the uh, engineering department look like? What is the, uh, what's your graduation rate and all those type of things? So, this is all about, hey, man, keep it up with the Joneses. This is all about with these players overseas. You know, the Luka Doncic is in the world and all these other guys. These guys start playing professional basketball sometimes when they're as young as 14 years old. Now, with this professional league that's going to be coming up to where they're going to be playing against other players of their own age, 16 to 18, the overtime uh, elite league or whatever, I would like to see the G League select kind of start, continue to play against grown men. So Scoot Henderson can start getting used to playing against grown men when he's 16, 17, 18 years old or when these guys decide to start coming in. As soon as they finish high school, they can go ahead and start playing against these grown men when they're 17, 18 years old. The thing is with these guys overseas, as I mentioned before, a lot of these pros, they start playing at such an early age in the professional leagues that, hey man, you know, over here in this country, we've got to keep up. We've got to keep up with the Joneses. We got to go ahead and see what we can do about starting to develop these players for a professional career earlier than what we're doing right now. So I think all of these things that everyone is putting together, that the place that the powers that be are putting together to improve high school basketball, if you're an elite player in terms of the competition is concerned, and then also giving them an option if they don't want to go to Duke, if they don't want to go to Georgetown, why wouldn't you? Not go to Kentucky and such, that you have other avenues to go to. I think this G League select team, and I think the avenues that they have, and I think the formation of a power high school basketball conference for these power high school basketball programs can do nothing but help these guys going forward, going into college, going into the uh, pro leagues, going into the professionals. Because, man, I tell you, you got guys like Jokic, you got guys like Giannis, you got guys like uh, Luka, you got all these guys. When... Those guys were the age of a high school's junior or a high school senior. Those guys were already seasoned vets against pros. Or those guys were already playing against professionals on a regular basis. So that's only got to help these other teams. That can only help these players when they come into the league. Because they're not scared. Because they're playing against grown men. They've been in grown men situations. They've been in grown men experiences. So going into the NBA is not going to phase them, even if they are coming from another country where they might not know the language, where they might not know the culture. Basketball-wise, they're much more advanced to take advantage of their skill level and their opportunity. So again, for this country, it's good that we start giving these young cats who are 
really talented basketball players who have the talent and the skill and potential to be really good basketball players, not just in high school or college, but then in the NBA. Man, let's get them ready. Let's get them seasoning. And I think the moves that are being made can only help increase their effectiveness and their ability to make that happen. Last segment of the program, Wendell's World in Sports. Last segment of the podcast, Wendell's World in Sports. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things getting down, discussing today in the world of sports. Now, if you don't mind, I'd like to sit back a little bit on the couch. Ah, relax for just a quick second. You don't need to put. You don't need to take out your pen and paper and your and your pad, Doc. You can put that away. I'm just gonna. I'm just gonna talk a little bit because it's been a minute since I mentioned my Georgetown Hoyas. Added some new talent. Lost some also. Jamari Sibley transferred, averaging just one point per game in 21 appearances. His best performance of the season. Seven point game in eight minutes versus Marquette on January 2nd. I know, I know, man. It was the third highest ranked recruit signed by Coach Ewing to date when he committed in November 19th behind James Akinjo, Kudus Wahab. Both guys no longer with the program. So I know, I know at the beginning, at the outset, it looked like, man, this is a big loss and everything. But as I mentioned before, one point per game was passed really by Colin Holloway in the rotation near the end of the, end of the season. So it wasn't, wasn't surprised. Wasn't shocked by it, and this hurt. This loss doesn't hurt like like Cutis did, but I think that um, some of the people we got coming in for next season help alleviate the loss of Cutis Wahab, alleviate some of the pain that was initially brought on by the announcement and transfer of Cutis, especially when he was going to Maryland. T.J. Berger also transferred out of the program, averaged one and a half points as a freshman in 2021-22. Oh, I'm sorry, 2020, 21, playing just 70 minutes over the course of the 26 games at a seven-point game at St. John's against St. John's as a season high. We thought that that might be the, that might be the bridge for Berger to get into the rotation, but he never did near the end of the season, especially when Georgetown started to make their run that uh, Coach Ewing really shrunk the rotation and um, guys like T.J. Berger and Colin Holloway and Jabari Sibley and Kobe Clark and the freshman class that were supposed to be helping the team this season didn't hardly see any type of action. The only freshman who saw any action was, of course, the point guard, Dante Harris. So Jabari Sibley 
TJ Berger marks the 11th and 12th transfers in the Patrick Ewing era in four seasons. If you take a look at Georgetown transfers over the four years, over the first four years, if you take a look at the coaches, their transfers over their first four years, John Thompson had one, Craig Estrick had three, John Thompson the third had six, and as I mentioned before, Ewing had 12. <laughs> hey, man. That's just the way it is, man. Welcome to the new wave of uh, college basketball. You know, how does it reflect on Ewing as a coach? How does it reflect on Ewing as a program builder? I mean, everybody's losing people, folks. Everybody. Why do you think Roy Williams and Mike Krzyzewski are getting out of the game right now? You're talking about the one and done in terms of players can transfer and not have to sit out a year. You're speaking about one and done. Now you're speaking about name, image, and likeness. Now you're speaking about more power, more options, more avenues for the athletes student athletes to uh, go down this is the thing that's going to be happening again as i mentioned before it's not so much about the kids as it is about the guardians about the adults as about the parents these are the things that are going on so you take a look at the players who have left under the program under patrick ewing chris sodom antoine walker grayson carter mac mcclung josh leblanc james akinjo galen alexander myron gardner cutis waham tj Berger, jamari sibley all those guys left for a variety of reasons. Everybody want to put that on Coach Ewing talking about, no, this is ridiculous, this is horrible, this is the reason why he can't run a program, this is the reason why ultimately he won't be successful. All the people who left, all the players who left, with the exception of probably James Akinjo and Matt McClung, I mean, what have they done since they left? And the reasons why they left, Chris Sodom and Antoine Walker were kicked off the team because they violated team rules. And Sodom transferred to George Washington, then went to Delaware State, where currently he's averaging one and a half points and three rebounds per game. Yeah, Delaware State. Yeah, that Delaware State. Walker transferred to Rhode Island, where he started all 25 games. He's averaging nine points, six and a half rebounds per game. Okay, not bad. Byron Gardner and Galen Alexander left under mysterious accusations. I, I still don't know the exact reason why those two left. I mean, it had to deal with some accusations of misconduct with females. I don't know what it is, but Gardner transferred to South Plains Junior College and averaged 14 points and seven rebounds per game. And Alexander transferred to Texas Southern where he's averaging 10 points and five and a half rebounds a game. Okay. No big flipping deal. Grayson Carter left because of lack of opportunities. He transferred to UT Arlington, played 22 games, averaged three and a half points, one in the third rebounds. I mean, that's no big loss. That's no huge loss. That's not going to set the program back. Players of consequence leaving the program? Okay, James Akinjo. Transferred and played one year in Arizona. Transferred again, and now he's playing at Baylor. Matt McClung transferred to Texas Tech for one season. Declared himself eligible for the NBA draft. Josh LeBlanc. These three guys, Akinjo, Mack, and LeBlanc, these were going to be the three guys that were going to get Georgetown back to prominence on their road back to prominence. All three made the Big East All-Freshman team. Akinjo was named Big East Freshman of the Year. So losing those three definitely hurt long term. But you take a look now. McClung's trying to go to the NBA. Good luck with that one. Akinjo is now on his third team in four years. And LeBlanc transferred to LSU, averaged three points, four rebounds per game and 16 minutes per game. He transferred again this offseason, so now he's looking for another team to play for. So at the start of the 21-22 season, just two scholarship players, Timothy Ego Hefe and Malcolm Wilson, are going to have more than a single season of experience with the team. Okay, so is that is that on Patrick Ewing? 
is that on, you know, is that a situation where he can't build a program, anything like that? Look, I like the additions to the team. You know, they picked up a couple of grad, uh, grad transfers. They picked up a transfer and a grad transfer. Caden Rice, uh, who's a three-point shooter, led the nation in three-point pointers made per game with almost four per game. Had 91 total three-point makes, second in the nation. So, you know, he's, he's the outside shooter that we're going to lose, we, that we picked up because of the loss of Berger. And then we have Trey King, who transferred from Eastern Kentucky. 6'9", transfer, played out of Lexington and playing three years at Eastern Kentucky University. So, you know, we, we picked up some pretty good guys. But look, I sure wish that we had the Kenner program. I sure wish that we had Kenner League so I can check out some of these guys so I can see what they were doing. I would love to see what Ryan Matambo was doing. would love to see what Jordan Riley is doing. would love to see what um, Tyler Beard is doing. would love to see what those guys are doing. Jordan uh, Billingsley. love to see what the... Love to see what uh, Dante Harris is doing and, and those type of guys. T- Timothy Ego Hefe definitely would have used, could have benefited from the the Kenner League this year, but um, it's not to be. It's not to be. But, you know, this stuff, it, welcome to the new age of college basketball where you have guys transferring all the time. And we haven't lost anybody of really any type of real consequence in in a while. And if you take a look at what happened once the Kinjo, LeBlanc, and McClung left, I mean, how much would they have been an asset the years to come for our program? We're going to continue to recruit hard. We're going to continue to, uh, you know, get guys. We're going to continue to build this program, and we're going to continue to have faith in Patrick Ewing because that what he, that's what he does, and that's what he's all about, and hard work pays off. So I'm confident, and uh, I'm good. I'm good. Thank you very much. All right, that's the end of the program. I'm going to go take a nap. I want to thank you so much. I don't know, man. I've been working out. I've been getting in better shape, but I've been like eating a lot of healthy food, and it's been wearing me out, man. I have no energy. For v- those who are vegan, I don't know how y'all do it, man. I don't know how y'all go through the day without eating any meat. I know it's possible. I know it's supposed to be healthy and all these things, man, but... You know, I don't eat meat until the uh, evening time. And during this time right now where I had a green drink of, what was my green drink? I had a green drink of tomato and celery and spinach and kale and broccoli and apple and carrots and such. Had a big glass of that. Then I had a couple of uh, slices of watermelon and a banana. I'm worn out, man. I need I need some eggs. I need some hash browns. I need some corned beef hash. I need some pancakes. I need some French toast. I need some chicken and waffles. I need some meat. I need something. I need a burger. I need fries. I need something, man. Because I'm just craving this stuff. Craving, craving, craving. I need a milkshake. I need fries. I need something, man. Because day after day of eating nothing but healthy food is starting to wear me out. I'm losing weight, but it's starting to wear me out, so... I don't know. Maybe I'll go to Subway and get myself a giant um, steak and cheese sandwich. I don't know. I don't know. Patience, young man. Fight the cravings. Fight the cravings. All right. That's it. Want to uh, thank you very much. I'm going to leave you. The outro music is going to be Booker T and the MG's Time is Tight live version near the end of it. It's 11 minutes of absolute wondrous brilliance. Not playing all 11 minutes of it, but the last three or four minutes of it. Just awesome. Of course, Booker T and the MGs, my hero, Steve Cropper, Donald Duck Dunn, Booker T, 
Al Jackson Jr., along with the Marquis, the uh, house band for the great Otis Redding, the legendary Otis Redding, my all-time favorite Otis Redding, along with Sam and Dave and Carla Thomas and Wilson Pickett and others whenever they went down to record at Memphis, at Stack Studios in Memphis. So that's what's going to be ending today. All right? All right? You good? We good? Be safe. Be strong. Be educated. Love, peace, unity, harmony, all of those things. Mr. Cropper, Mr. Dunn, Mr. Jackson, Mr. Jones, if you would please, get it down and get it funky. Music. <laughs>